Sunday blessings to you all. This is the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection that commences a new week and offers a new opportunity to be drawn by grace more deeply into the paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, may each of us graciously respond to Jesus' invitation to live more deeply his passion, death, and glorious resurrection and ascension and be drawn into loving communion with God our Father. You are listening to Encountering Jesus with the Church Fathers, a podcast pondering patristic commentary and insight on the sacred scriptures, the sacred liturgy, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Father Mark, and I welcome you to this podcast on the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Guiding us this Sunday in opening the Word of God is St. Gregory of Nyssa. He was born in 335 in modern-day Turkey and grew up in a very devout Christian family, although he did not share the zeal for the faith the way his parents did, nor the way his older sister Macrina did. In time, however, Gregory's Christian fervor grew as his older brother, St. Basil the Great, who was the Metropolitan Bishop of the province of Caesarea, convinced him to accept ordination as a bishop. Basil, his younger brother Gregory, and a dear friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, became known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Not only were the trio able to defend the true divinity and true humanity of Jesus, the two Gregories were very influential at the Council of Constantinople in 381. On this Sunday, we listen to an excerpt from St. Gregory's Life of Moses. This work, like his work, Homilies on the Song of Songs, is numbered among the latest of his works and demonstrates his refined, nuanced, and mastery of the allegoric method of interpreting sacred scripture, as well as insightful wisdom for spiritual direction. For Gregory, The life of Moses models the journey of the believer who is challenged to avoid all sin and this Sunday we'll focus on the sin of envy and be drawn by the Holy Spirit into union with God the Father through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, an excerpt from St. Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. No longer does any offense which comes about through evil withstand the one who in this manner follows God. After these things, the envy of his brothers arose against him. Envy is the passion which causes evil, the father of death, 
the first entrance of sin, the root of wickedness, the birth of sorrow, the mother of misfortune, the basis of disobedience, the beginning of shame. Envy banished us from paradise, having become a serpent to oppose Eve. Envy walled us off from the tree of life, divested us of holy garments, and in shame led us away clothed with fig leaves. Envy armed Cain contrary to nature and instituted the death which is vindicated seven times. Envy made Joseph a slave. Envy is the death-dealing sting, the hidden weapon, the sickness of nature, the bitter poison, the self-willed emanciation, the bitter dart, the nail of the soul, the fire in the heart, the flame burning on the inside. For envy, it is not its own misfortune, but another's good fortune that is unfortunate. Again, inversely, success is not one's own good fortune, but the neighbor's misfortune. Envy is grieved at the good deeds of men and takes advantage of their misfortunes. It is said that the vultures which devour corpses are destroyed by perfume. Their nature is akin to the foul and the corrupt. Anyone who is in the power of this sickness is destroyed by the happiness of his neighbors as by the application of some perfume. But if he should see any unfortunate experience, he flies to it, sets its crooked beak to it, and draws forth the hidden misfortunes. Envy fought against many who lived before Moses, but when it attacked this great man, it was broken like a clay pot being dashed against a rock. By this especially was shown the progress which Moses had made in his journey with God. He ran in the divine place, took his stand on the rock, was held in its opening, was covered by God's hand, and followed behind his leader, not looking him in the face, but looking at his back. That he appeared higher than the bow can shoot shows that of himself, he had become the most blessed in following God. For envy also sends the dart against Moses, but it does not reach the height where Moses was. The bowstring of evil was too slack to shoot the passion far enough to reach Moses from those who were previously ill. But Aaron and Miriam were wounded by the passion of its evil influence and became like the bow of envy, shooting words against him, 
rather than darts. Moses so refrained from becoming involved in their weakness that he even ministered to the condition of those who had become ill. Not only was he not moved to defend himself against those who caused him sorrow, but he even besought God for mercy on their behalf. He showed through what he did, I think, that the person who is well fortified with the shield of virtue will not be stung by the tips of the dart. He blunts the spears. The hardness of his armor deflects them. The armor that protects such darts is God himself, whom the soldier of virtue puts on. For scripture says, let your armor be the Lord Jesus. That is to say, the full armor that cannot be pierced. Being thus well protected, Moses rendered the evil archer ineffective. He did not rush to defend himself against those who caused him sorrow, although they had been condemned by impartial judgment, and he knew what was the naturally right thing to do. He nevertheless interceded with God for his brethren. He would not have done this if he had not been behind God, who had shown him his back as a safe guide to virtue. Let us proceed. When the natural enemy of men found no occasion to harm Moses, he directed the battle against those more vulnerable. When the lust of gluttony had been thrown at the people like a dart, he caused in them a desire for the things of Egypt, so that they preferred the meat eaten by the Egyptians to the bread of heaven. But Moses, having an elevated soul and soaring above such lust, was totally devoted to the coming inheritance which had prom been promised by God to those who departed from Egypt, spiritually understood, and made their way to that land flowing with milk and honey. For this reason he appointed some spies to be teachers of the beauties in that land. The spies, in my opinion, are, on the one hand, those who offer hope of good things are the reasonings born of faith which confirm hope for the good things laid up for us. On the other hand, the reasonings of the adversary would be those who reject better hopes and blunt faith in the things reported. Moses considered no report of the opponents trustworthy, but accepted the man who gave a more favorable report of the land. Joshua was the one who led the better mission, and he made the things reported trustworthy by his own confirmation. When Moses looked at him, he had a steady, firm hope for the future, finding proof of that land's abundance in the bunch of grapes which Joshua 
had carried back on poles. Of course, when you hear Joshua telling about the land and about a bunch of grapes hanging on the wood, you perceive what it is that he sees, which makes him secure in his hopes. What is the bunch of grapes suspended from the wood, but that bunch suspended from the wood in the last days, whose blood becomes a saving drink for those who believe? Moses spoke to us of this ahead of time, when he said in a figure, They drank the blood of the grape. By this, he signifies the saving passion. Again, the way led through the desert, and the people lost hope in the good things promised and were reduced to thirst. Moses again made water flow in the desert for them. When it is perceived spiritually, this account teaches us what the mystery of repentance is. Those who turn to the stomach, the flesh, and the Egyptian pleasures, after having once tasted the rock, are sentenced to be excluded from partaking in good things. But they can, by repentance, find the rock which they abandon and again open the spring of water for themselves and take their fill. The rock gives forth water to Moses, who believed that Joshua's spying is truer than his opponents. Moses, who looked to the bunch of grapes, which for our sakes was suspended and shed blood, and Moses, who by the wood prepared water to gush from the rock again for them. But the people had not yet learned to keep in step with Moses' greatness. They were still drawn down to the slavish passions and were inclined to the Egyptian pleasures. The history shows that by this, that human nature is especially drawn to this passion, being led to the disease along thousands of ways. As a physician, by his treatment, prevents a disease from prevailing, so Moses does not permit the disease to cause death. Their unruly desires produce serpents, which injected deadly poison into the bite. The great lawgiver, however, rendered the real serpent powerless by the image of a serpent. This would be an appropriate time to explain the figure. There is one antidote for these evil passions. The purification of our souls, which takes place through the mystery of godliness. The chief act of faith in the mystery is to look to him who suffered the passion for us. The cross is the passion, so that whoever looks to it, as the text relates, is not harmed by the poison of desires. To look to the cross 
means to render one's whole life dead and crucified to the world, unmoved by evil. Truly, it is as the prophet says, they nail their own flesh with the fear of God. The nail would be the self-control that holds the flesh. Since therefore unruly desires brought forth the deadly serpents from the earth, for every offspring of evil desire is a serpent, the law prefigures for us what is clear in the wood. This figure is a likeness of the serpent, and not a serpent itself, but as the great Paul himself says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Sin is the real serpent, and whoever deserts to sin takes on the nature of the serpent. Man, then, is freed from sin through him who assumed the form of sin and became like us who had turned into the form of the serpent. He keeps the bites from causing death, but the beasts themselves are not destroyed. By beast I mean desires. For although the evil of death which follow sins does not prevail against those who look to the cross, the lust of flesh against the spirit has not completely ceased to exist. In fact, the gnawings of desire are frequently active, even in the faithful. Nevertheless, the person who looks to the one lifted up on the wood rejects passion, diluting the poison with the fear of the commandment as with a medicine. The voice of the Lord teaches clearly that the serpent lifted up in the desert is a symbol of the mystery of the cross when he says, The Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. St. Gregory of Nyssa, pray for us. Let us pray. O God, who founded all the commands of your sacred law upon love of you and of our neighbor, grant that by keeping your precepts we may merit to attain eternal life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go and announce the Gospel of the Lord. <laughs>